Welcome, uh, good afternoon to all, and welcome to the interview of the Association for the Study of the Cuban Economy of Dr. Carmen Reinhardt, Vice President and Chief Economist of the World Bank. My name is Lorenzo Perez. I am the Secretary of the Board of the Association, and I will be the moderator of this event. Now I would like to ask the president of ASCII, Gary Maybordock, to introduce Dr. Reinhardt and the other panelists. Thank you, Lorenzo, and welcome, Carmen. I think I'm the only person here who hasn't worked with you at some point, but I've read your book quite thoroughly. Carmen Reinhardt is the vice president and Chief Economist of the World Bank Group. Assuming the role in June 2020, Professor Reinhardt provides thought leadership to the institution at a time of unprecedented crisis. She also manages the bank, the bank's development economics department. Reinhardt's area of expertise are in international finance and macroeconomics. Her work is to inform the understanding of financial crisis in both advanced economies and emerging markets. She has published extensively on capital flows, exchange rate policy, banking, sovereign debt crisis, and contagion. She comes to the position on public services from the Harvard Kennedy School, where she is the A. Zombanicus, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, professor of the international system. Previously, she was a Douglas Weatherstone Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for International Economics at the University of Maryland. During her career, Professor Reinhardt has worked in numerous roles to address policy challenges, including most recently uh, the coronavirus pandemic and its economic impact. She serves in the advisory panels of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York and the International Monetary Fund. Earlier, she was the senior policy advisor and deputy director of the research department at the International Monetary Fund and held positions as chief economist and vice president at the investment bank Bear Stearns. Ranked among the top economists worldwide based on publications and scholarly citations, Professor Reinhardt has been listed among Bloomberg Market's most influential 50 in finance, foreign policy's top 100 global thinkers, and Thomas Reuters, the world's most influential scientific minds. In, 19, in 2018, she was awarded the King Juan Carlos Prize in Economics. Her book with Kenneth Rogoff, entitled This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly, has been translated to over 20 languages and, she, and won the Paul A. Samuelson Award. She holds a PhD from Columbia University. Our other speakers, first of all, I should mention Lorenzo, a moderator, has a PhD in economics from the University of Pennsylvania and worked at Treasury, the Agency of International Development, and the IMF. He retired from the IMF in 2009 after working there for over 30 years, where he led the IMF work in countries in Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East and Central 
Asia. Rafael Ramu is the president and CEO of DevTech Systems, an economic consulting firm. Prior to joining DevTech, he worked at the International Monetary Fund from 2001 to 2014. His PhD is from the University of Maryland College Park, where he studied Dr. Rein under Dr. Reinhardt's direction. Louise Louise is an international economist in Massachusetts and a current member of the board of ASCII. He was long involved in international organizations, international banks and investment companies, as well as teaching in US and foreign universities. He's one of our more prolific writers. Ernesto Hernandez Cata has been with ASCII forever, I think. He, he served as manager of the World Economic Outlook and the Mon International Monetary Fund. He was the chief negotiator with Russia an associate director of Western Hemisphere and African departments. A Yale PhD, he taught at American University and the School for Advanced International Studies of John Hopkins University. Jorge Sanganelli, again, has been here forever. He found one of the founders of ASCII. Um, he has his PhD from economics at the City University of New York and specialized in education and development. He taught economics at the American University in Washington, D.C., and founded DevTech Systems to provide international development assistance. ASCII's in now his 30th year. Okay. Apparently, uh, I got muted. I don't know who I missed. It's okay, Gary. Yeah, I see. Okay. Okay. Well, let me know on the chat if I missed anybody. I'll reintroduce you. Okay. Um, and I'm sorry about that. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, without further ado, I give you Carmen. Okay, Carmen. Uh, we had agreed that you will talk in general about four topics, and the first one that will be of great interest particularly to the young members of the ASCII community, is uh, to discuss your personal trajectory in your professional development as an economist. So please go ahead, Carl. Thank you for uh, hosting me. And, uh, you know, I, I see so many familiar faces, you know. I, I have to, uh, when we get to the IMF, he was my first mission chief. Lorenzo was my first mission chief, but I will reminisce about that. And, you know, Roger, my colleague, and, and Rafael, my, my, my student. So I, I am among family. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of ended up where I thought I would start. Uh, but the trajectory was not exactly linear. So when I went to graduate school, um, I, I, it, my fields were pretty clear. I, know, I, I actually knew fairly early on that I wanted to do international, that I was macro, that I was applied you know, uh, econometrics. So that, that, that was 
early. And I thought that I would become a professor. That was my goal when I went to Columbia University. Then I got to Columbia University and, you know, there was a lot of less than inspiring, uh, you know, goings on at the time, a lot of infighting among faculty, a lot of, you know, a lot, a, a lot of untoward uh, things going on, which put me, put me off. And then, you know, uh, I finished my field exams. Uh, I married a classmate, Vincent uh, Reinhardt, uh, and um, decided that I, I, I really, what my main goal was going to be was to make money. And uh, I, I went to Bear Stearns, to, to a brokerage firm. And I started at Bear Stearns, this is important, in March of 1982 when Mexico defaulted in August of 1982. And I was fascinated, you know, that, that because you, you, you all know from the, the domino effect that you had you know, default, the default, the, 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 the crisis of the, the American banks, uh, Volcker reacting to the hardship of the banks and lowering rates. So this was the, the whole idea of crises and the interest in, in, in financial crises, I think dates back to a very early stage. Um, I, I should mention that I started at Bear Stearns without having finished my dissertation because I thought that I could work full-time at a broker firm and finish the dissertation. Of course, that was not the case. I was four and a half years at a brokerage firm and I never wrote a word on my thesis. But I really knew that I I think we lost her. The connection, her connection was stable. Yes. I she would need to reconnect again. It was freezing. So we wait one. Very good. So uh, I think the fact that I was at a brokerage firm uh, where there was a lot of uh, concern about the collapse of U.S. banks that were exposed to uh, Mexico, to, to Latin America at large, was a big motivating factor for me to, to uh, um, become very interested in financial crises. Um, and after four and a half years, uh, since I still did not have a dissertation, I decided I was going to leave Wall Street to finish my dissertation at Columbia University. And uh, um, then uh, what I really wanted to do was policy work. Uh, those four and a half years sort of uh, were, were very, you know, very important in getting me interested in, in, in uh, macro policy work. And uh, I completed my dissertation in about nine months and then went to the IMF. And that's where I, I my first mission chief was Lorenzo. And we went to Panama. And I see Ernesto that I hadn't seen before there. And he was also my mission chief uh, to Canada of all places. Uh, well, that's never had a financial crisis in the last I don't know how many decades. Um, and uh, um, ultimately at the fund, it was 
a very influential figure for me was Guillermo Calvo, whom I worked with for years as a dear friend also. And Guillermo and I started working together, doing research. And I really, you know, this is why I said at the beginning that it was rather circular. Uh, and the, the, the research work really lured me back to academia and I ended up uh, being an academic, but an academic that sort of has also one foot in the policy world as, 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 as well. I went back to the IMF in 2001, 2003, and now I'm currently uh, at the World Bank. So that's a little bit of, of, of my swift, you know, a swift telling of my trajectory. Thank you very much, Carmen. Maybe uh, Rafael Romeo can make some comments or ask you some comments to elaborate a bit. Uh, but sure. we should be moving along uh, to the other topics. So. Sure, thank you, Lorenzo. Uh, Carmen, uh, I think uh, Gary, Gary did a, a, a great job introducing you. Uh, I'm going to put some meat on the bones because I think it, 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 uh, it goes unstated just how influential and how important your work has been. You are the 12th most cited economist in the world. There are five Nobel laureates in the top 20 that are cited more than you, and there are two that are cited less than you. What is interesting to me is you're the only woman in the top 20. You're probably one of three or four in the top uh, 100 in economics. And, uh, you know, th these days, uh, gender has become a big issue. And so I was wondering if you could talk uh, about economics and how you how you see your trajectory career path in two ways. The first is uh, something that's a lot of interest to a lot of people is, is uh, you know, the role of, of, of gender and economics has become a hot topic. Uh, and also, if, if it, I don't know if it happened to you the way it happened to me that I moved from the IMF to a really a development oriented institution, you may be seen at the World Bank, gender is part of their mission, which is not so much at the fund. Um, what, what can we learn from them? And what do they need to learn from us about financial crises and just macroeconomics and the real setbacks that that can have on the economy? How do you see that uh, the issue on the professional level and on the sort of policy level? So those are two really big, big questions. On, on the gender issue, uh, you know, um, it's, you know, I, I'm not a spring chicken. So, you know, this is, this is, was in an era where you really did have, uh, in Wall Street, when I was actually my first job in giving economic outlooks, I actually went to gentlemen's clubs, literally to give, you know, a breakfast talk on the economic outlook. It was, it was a different world. And one of the things I love, you know, today at the, at the fund, you know, the, at the IMF, the issue of, of diversity, uh, you know, in, in, in very general dimensions, when, when I joined the IMF, um, and just before joining, when, during the interview process, you know, I, I was told beforehand, you know, we really, really like you. You're, you're very, very high on our list. But, you know, you have the problem that you're American. So the fact that I was a woman, that I was Cuban, and, and you know, it, it wasn't a factor, I mean, in, in those days. Um, 
you know, uh, I, I, this is a very candid interview. So one of the things I would say the single most, uh, you know, annoying thing for me is uh, women, and this is in the profession, very often uh, do get uh, back treatment. And what do I mean? I mean, Rogoff and Reinhardt, if you really want to see me angry, refer to my work as Rogoff and Reinhardt, you know, because uh, the, the, the respect for, for the alphabet is something that, you know, in the economics profession, putting somebody last implies, uh, you know, that. And so, so th but those are very real issues to this day, which is why gender issues have become very much alive in, in, in um, but you know, the, the, the important thing for me has been that I've always done what I liked in terms of economics. The gender was not, I, I don't do gender economics and I've always worked on the topics that I like, whether it's financial crisis or capital flows or inflation stabilization. And I think those are genderless topics. Uh, but they're, they're sure, in my view at least, are very important. Um, on development, you're right, Rafael, it is a big transition and, and I'm going through a big transition at the bank, uh, learning about things that are very far afield, you know, from my, my own areas. Um, things also that have a much micro orientation, a much more micro approach. Um, the way programs get evaluated, the way that um, you know, uh, field experiments uh, are done as to, you know, the, to establish the efficacy of policy. It's a very different world from my own, uh, my own line of research, but I think it's very enriching. And I'm not just saying that, it really is enriching. I mean, one of the things that uh, I've done, uh, which is part of what was uh, done in the past is the DEC, the, the group that I, I direct, um, is also responsible for the PSPR, which is the Poverty and Shared Prosperity Report that's coming out uh, next month. And uh, for the first time since 2000, this report is gonna show a huge spike in poverty this year. And so the, the going through the building blocks of the report, going through, you know, the other dimensions that you think about less at the macro level has been so far, you know, a big, a big learning, steep learning curve for me, but, but also I think very enriching. If I may, Carmen, given that time is flying and I know that you're quite busy, Maybe we could move to the next topic on monetary issues. You can talk about it once you want. And our friend Luis Luis will ask you questions or comments. So please go ahead on that. Uh, yes, Carmen, are you going to make a statement about monetary issues or shall I uh, introduce some of the uh, ideas? What, what whatever you okay <laughs> all right well uh, let me just say that uh, we, we we've been having extraordinary times in monetary policy we've had um, 
uh, almost unlimited quantitative easing in both uh, the US and the Eurozone. The uh, balance sheets of both the, um, the, the Fed and the European Central Bank have expanded by, uh, by 3 trillion euros and dollars. And, um, and rates have come down in the US. Uh, of course, there is a lower bound limit with the Euro since rates were already at, at zero. So we've had this, uh, this very uh, accumulative uh, monetary policy. And the question, of course, is uh, there is always a price to pay for everything you do. And um, so, I mean, there are many issues that come up. Uh, one is that, uh, that agents have become accustomed to and expect now this thing to last a long time and for policy to be very relaxed in the long term. So that, uh, uh, in a way, it puts uh, a, a, a delicate balance on monetary authorities um, in advanced countries. The second is that the risk profiles have changed because of monetary policy. And that has led to, um, to uh, essentially, uh, uh, and they have changed for different reasons, but, and the market, I think, has been absorbing this fairly well, you can see that for emerging markets, there is a, uh, it makes sense where yields have moved. Yields are now the same as they were before the crisis, but spreads are, are not the same because of the, you know, the lowering of, uh, of rates in the US. But these risk perceptions um, uh, present also a dilemma in the future as to how to conduct future monetary policy. And uh, that's what I, uh, I think tomorrow we'll may know a little bit more about the Fed since, uh, since Mr. Powell is, um, is going to talk about, about the longer term outlook for the Fed. Low for long. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, so, and then the, yeah. Um, you know, uh, the issues that you have brought up are issues that I have also addressed in my work. Um, and, you know, every era brings in new things, and we're definitely seeing new things, but some of them are not entirely new. And um, I'd like to, you know, uh, I'd like to take your question and, or your, your concerns with monetary policy in different parts. Um, so you mentioned, so what are some of the risks, you know, or some of what, 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 uh, what's on the other side of the low rate story? What, what are some of the problems? Um, and then, so, so I, I will take that issue. And then also I'd like to say something also not just about sort of it's not like uh, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Let me start with the something old and then I'll move on to the something new. The something old is uh, in work that I did with a former student of mine who's at the IMF, Belez Brancia, on financial repression, which I've been writing about also for the last 10, 12 years now. Uh, it dates back to the era right after the end of World War II. The idea of ceilings, 
you know, the Japan's zero ceilings on long rates uh, is not new. This is actually was wartime policy. You, you, you know, um, the, the, the logic behind it is pretty straightforward. When you have very high levels of indebtedness, federal debt, one way to keep the cost of debt down is low interest rates. Uh, I think we are going to have very low interest rates for a very long time. Obviously, the idea of having low interest rates on government debt is not what has motivated the Fed. I am not saying that's the motivating factor. Okay, the motivating factor in 2008, 2009 was a global finance, was a financial crisis in the US and 10 other advanced economies. And the motivating factor uh, today was a global pandemic that has more in common with the 1930s uh, than any other crisis since. So, but what are some of the risks? Okay, so people have said, look, you know, inflation's dead. Inflation died, and you know, we had a big surge and a monetary expansion 2008 after 2008, 2009, nothing happened. Ditto goes for now. I, I'm, I always worry when economists declare victory on anything. That, that in and of itself is cause for concern. You know, we had declared victory on the business cycle. Remember the great moderation? Uh, the great moderation ended with the biggest recessions the advanced economies had had, uh, you know, since in the post-war. Uh, if I had told you in 2007 that an advanced economy in Europe would default, on its government debt, people would have thought I was insane. And we've, so we've had, you know, government defaults, we've had financial crises that were a thing of the past, and now we've, we, we've taken a very complacent attitude. Inflation can always come back. But I think one of the things that worries me, you asked me about also risks, is the commingling. This is, COVID is a massive aggregate demand shock, but it's also a supply shock. So it's not just about the monetary accommodation. It's the co monetary accommodation commingled with an adverse supply shock, or more accurately, a great many supply shocks. Um, you know, the supply shock of the 1970s was something very different. That was OPEC. Uh, but it was a supply shock nonetheless. And it, that combination of trying to stimulate an economy that suffered a supply shock can uh, open the door to, to an inflation issue. That's one risk, not around the corner because we are in a depression, uh, but somewhere down the road. I think the more imminent risk, and you alluded to this, uh, we see it with the return of capital to emerging markets is the search for yield. With very low interest rates, you have an invitation for searching for yield, and a search for yield is nothing other than risk taking. Um, and you know, I it's a double-edged sword for emerging markets that you know uh, investors are willing to lend at this time because you also have to ask yourself: they're willing to lend, yes, at what rates? 
El Salvador issue a 30-year bond at nine and a half. I don't think El Salvador has grown nine and a half percent for many years since the national accounts uh, have been kept. So, so you know, uh, risk taking is 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 another source of concern. But I'll conclude on something a little more upbeat, uh, which is risks notwithstanding, okay, and there are risks associated with that. This is the first time that in reaction to a crisis, emerging markets have been able to do counter-cyclical monetary policy. The typical response during a crisis is to tighten policy because you're trying to defend the exchange rate, because you're trying to avoid reserve losses, because you're trying to avoid or minimize capital flight. This is the first time we've actually been able to see that during a massive economic downturn. Um, central banks in emerging markets have been able to act counter-cyclically. That's, that's a new phenomenon. I, I don't, I, I don't want to, I want to allow time for discussion, so I, I'm going to stop there, but there are risks associated with that as well. Thank you very much, uh, Carmen. And now this brings us to the issue of fiscal policy, which is a very important instrument in the current situation. So again, you can say some comments or Ernesto make some, ask some questions, whatever you prefer. So we have moved now to the fiscal area. Ernesto? Uh, is Ernesto going to uh, bring up the fiscal issues? You have to unmute yourself, Ernesto. Mute. You can, or you can start the Carmen, if you want. If you well, want. you know, um, one of the things that um, I think is, of course, making this crisis even more challenging. I mean, it's already enormously challenging on many dimensions, but uh, one thing that is making it more challenging is that the needs, the fiscal needs are enormous, right? The social needs are enormous and the fiscal resources are limited and more limited, you know, in, in poorer countries and in emerging markets. Um, so this is a very, you know, unenviable, uh, very unenviable situation. Um, my view uh, is that at the moment, at the, you know, the initial wave, and I've made this point in various of my writings, this uh, crisis uh, will not be, the economic crisis, the balance sheet damage of this crisis will not be over until the disease uh, comes under control. And so, you know, uh, I think the, most pressing uh, of needs is, you know, the very obvious, the very obvious on the medical area, 
uh, on you know minimum social safety nets and 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 in you know uh, dealing with the most impacted segments of the population. I think without that you can't move to recovery. Without dealing with that, you can't move to recovery. Now this is easier said than done because. Uh, I, I, I mentioned at the outset that this is the worst crisis since the 1930s. And um, unlike 2008, 2009, emerging markets have much weaker initial conditions than they did fiscally, uh, much weaker initial conditions than they did in 2008, 2009. Uh, external debt levels are higher, public debt levels are higher, fiscal space is more limited, and importantly, and this is particularly true in Latin America, um, the fiscal accounts and the growth were being uh, stimulated significantly in 2008-2009 crisis from double-digit growth in China, which kept global commodity prices very high, and obviously, you know, all, all of that filters down to the budget, it filters down to growth. Um, so we are very far from the uh, relatively more benign fiscal conditions and economic conditions of 2008-2009. So um, going to what lies ahead on the fiscal side, I think we are going to see a lot more debt problems. We're already seeing this in the low-income countries, but beyond the low-income countries, we have negotiated, you know, our Argentina, Ecuador is being negotiated, Venezuela, of course, is in a league of its own, uh, you know, um, countries that were doing extremely well in 2008, 2009, like Angola, uh, you know, uh, are, are now also, uh, in, in the midst of, of, of uh, you know, debt negotiations as well. So I think debt crises are, which we have not seen on this large scale since the 80s are, are in the horizon. And the fiscal story, and I will conclude on this, the fiscal story doesn't end there because one of the key features of crisis is that what is private debt before the crisis becomes public debt after the crisis. And banks are being hit by, you know, massive economic contractions. Their non-performing assets, when the dust settles, are going to be much larger uh, in an environment of limited, more limited growth uh, so I'm not saying you have the full bubble type banking crisis, but you're going to have a lot of banking sector problems and a lot of support needed for this financial system. So that co-mingles into my expectation that real big debt challenges and debt restructuring challenges uh, lie ahead for, for uh, you know, uh, many uh, developing countries and many emerging markets, and you can't rule out uh, that you know some of the strains that we see in emerging markets also 
uh, you know, reverberate in countries like Italy that have been struggling for now for decades with extremely low growth and very high debt. Of course, Italy has, you know, the Eurozone uh, uh, support, but, you know, the more imminent fiscal concern that I have are debt crises in the banking. Ernesto, maybe you want to comment something now or raise another Can question? you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Well, Carmen, let me first congratulate you for your appointment to the highest position ever reached by a Cuban-American anywhere in the solar system. Uh, we're <laughs> sure you're going to do very well, but make sure that when you travel, you don't forget your keys in your hotel room. <laughs> a chronic problem yes <laughs> <Inside joke. laughs> look the uh, the fiscal problem is not only a problem for the develop for the developing countries it's a problem for the large industrial countries and there's not going to be uh, a felicitous uh, recovery if the industrial countries are not part of it. Um, the uh, of course, the, uh, these are extraordinary times, and for extraordinary times, we must justify things that otherwise would be unjustifiable, like massive fiscal stimulus. And this has happened virtually in every country. But just to talk about the United States for a second, um, we had $3 trillion disbursed. We're talking about an addition of $2 trillion. Uh, candidate uh, Joe Biden is talking about spending $7.7 billion, a trillion dollars in, uh, in the next 10 years uh, in a variety of programs that I'm sure have, uh, have a lot of merit, but it's a lot of money. Uh, so if you take the, the Biden's 7.7 7, 7 .7 trillion plus a current services estimate of 13 trillion, you're talking about expenditures of $20 trillion over the next 10 years. And that has never happened. That's completely unprecedented. And in my view, probably unsustainable. So my question is, how do you get out of that pickle? Uh, is it by cutting other expenditures? That's not always easy. Uh, by increasing taxes? by allowing the debt to balloon, uh, which means borrowing from our grandchildren, or by letting the inflation tax erode the, the government debt. That's my question. Oh, it's, it's, it's so simple. <laughs> so look, I focus my remarks on emerging markets and developing countries because I think that's the more imminent. Sure. The other has a much longer pipeline, okay? More lo much longer rope, if you will. Um, in work that I've done with uh, Vincent, Vincent Reinhardt, uh, my husband, and Ken Rogoff, uh, we did a paper called Dealing with Debt that Ernesto actually asks the question you asked, how did advanced economies in the past deal with very high debt levels? How did they unwind it? Um, 
the and then you know let me just very quickly you can grow your way out of it wishful thinking usually uh you can do uh fiscal tightening uh raising taxes lowering expenditure or both uh you can do and and these are the orthodox you grow or you do uh, fiscal adjustment the less orthodox is financial repression you maintain negative interest rates which is a tax on bondholders uh, this was done after world war ii by the us and the uk and most of the advanced economies you do something more draconian with fiscal repression which is you allow inflation to make those negative interest rates even more negative and you have debt liquidation through uh, inflation. Or you can be more explicit and restructure right off. And this is not unheard of, okay? The, the, the abrogation of the gold clause in uh, the 30s in the US was a default. Um, in June of 1934, about a dozen countries, a little over a dozen countries, suspended their debt payments to the United States. These were World War I and post-World War I debts. This is not trivial. This was 24% of GDP for UK, of UK GDP and even higher level for France. These were big defaults. Now, this was official to official debt, government to government. So it's different from default on a private creditors. But what I'm getting at, Ernesto, was that a key finding in this work with Vincent and, and Ken was that for moderate increases in debt, the conventional methods, you know, a combination of growth and a, a, a fiscal belt tightening. This was Canada in the, in the 90s. It was Ireland. You know, it was, that's, that was the, the route. For the more draconian increases in debt, usually the legacy of wars, and we are in a war, uh, you needed the more, the less orthodox. Uh, so, you know, I do, and, and one thing that I would, I, I, to conclude, one thing that we really is new that wasn't an issue at the end of World War II, where we had at the public sector level, comparable levels of debt, is that we now have a lot of pension debt. Uh, and so, you know, recontracting there, basically, I don't think it's going to happen explicitly. I think it's going to have happen through a provision of less services. In other words, you know, um, the restructuring can happen more obliquely or more explicitly, or a combination of the two. I think, uh, for example, to give you a concrete, and I'll stop there, a concrete example of uh, the form of default or restructuring among the, within the official sector is, you know, I don't think that debt that flow into central bank hands will ever flow back out again. So, you know, right now, for example, the Bank of Japan holds a very large share 
of the government debt. I don't think that debt is going to recirculate ultimately. You know, there is, there is, there will be some sort of, you know, restructuring of the, of, of that debt internally within the official sector. Carmen, so part of it is monetary accommodation. Carmen, thank you very much. Uh, given that you are working now the world one, we have to spend some time on development issues. I hope you can give us another 10 or 15 minutes. But uh, on development, uh, I don't know whether you want to make a statement first or we ask uh, Jorge Sanguinetti to, to raise some issues with you, whatever you prefer. No, I'd like to hear from Jorge. Okay. okay. Jorge, Hi, Carmen. How are Hello? you? Hello. <laughs> nice to see you again. Indeed. Well, the world. I can't hear. No, I cannot hear either. Well, Jorge, what happened? I don't know. And now we hear you. Now we okay. hear you. Go ahead. You can you okay. can raise some issues, Jorge, now, please. Okay. International Bank of Re for Recon. Connection. chance of going into the recovery dimension of the bank. Recovery after. Recovery. And I am aware that this recovery, as you pointed out in your recent article in Foreign Affairs, you cannot confuse recovery with rebound. How do you see the World Bank coordinating this effort for recovery, especially taking into account that the countries require the recovery is has to be centered in the private sector and especially in the small business sector, which is something kind of strange for the bank. How would you see this? So um, I think there will be stages, okay? So I think the initial stage, uh, and I'm going to talk both about the bank and the IMF. The initial stage, and we are to a large extent still in that initial stage, has had two components. Uh, one is more aggressive, shorter fuse, more front-loaded uh, lending. This is to fill in what are big financing gaps. So if you ask me what the role of the bank or the fund has been in the early stages, um, has been to, um, uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I, I, I had some sort of call. Um, the early stages at the fund at the bank has been to try to deal with this pandemic first as a temporary shock, as a very adverse but temporary shock, which means supplying liquidity. Now, um, 
so so for example the the world bank has had more general support general budgetary support type loans than it would typically have right because you know the the this was about really providing general budgetary support uh in terms of getting uh in terms of contributing what ha have other roles been a big role that the world bank has played uh since the pandemic is to try to get at least some temporary breathing space you want you can't call it debt relief at the moment because nothing these the proposal of DSSI the debt suspension initiative of the G20 is just that it's a temporary suspension of payments although I think that's going to be extended okay but the World Bank has been very active in as I said not just providing more funding initially but also trying to get um, bilateral creditors uh, to uh, forego receiving payments, at least over the, the emergency period. And it's interesting what you, that you bring up the private sector, because the private sector has been a thorn on the side uh, of the debt, re debt relief initiative of the DSSI. The private, you know, the, the, the World Bank and the IMF have called repeatedly for the private sector to join in this temporary uh, debt suspension initiative to allow countries to use, instead of paying interest in principle, to deflect uh, expenditure towards the more emergency, you know, needs. That hasn't happened. So I, it, the idea that there is going to be any kind of near-term uh, uh, involvement on the private sector side, I, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think, um, you know, over the medium term, this financing uh, the financing of the massive needs um, are largely going to be uh, disproportionately the, the, the multilaterals. Now, what this will also mean is that both the IMF and the, the World Bank will be facing down the road a lot more risky profile in terms of their exposure. Because one thing that is very unique to this episode is the synchronicity and the how widespread the uh, problems are because the exposure in the 2008-2009 crisis was Iceland, Ireland, Portugal, and Greece. The emerging markets on the whole were doing pretty well at that time. So now that exposure is much more diffuse and uh i think that's going to pose you know a challenge uh for for both institutions uh going down going down the road 
But let me say that, Jorge, I, I, I haven't been wildly encouraged by the sort of private sector uh, engagement. Um, you know, it, it has not been forthcoming. And I think one of the things that also worries me is when I look at the historical uh, experience in debt restructuring, and I have you know all the data for all the debt restructuring episodes of external debt for emerging markets since World War II. Um, the average is seven years. This is probably you know restructurings with the private sector. So that's not you know that that is a source of concern. So it's hence you know the point we make in the article. Let's not confuse rebound with recovery, their recovery is likely to be held back by a variety of reasons and incomplete debt restructuring may be one of them. Okay, uh, Carmen, thank you very much. We have hit the hour. I don't know whether you want to make any other additional comments. If not, I will ask uh, Gary, our president, to close the seminar in my and go. So go ahead, Gary, please. Uh, thank you so much, Carmen. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I might tell our listeners that this is the second time you've, you've um, presented to ASCII. It was, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, you you gave the Carlos Diaz Alejandro lecture, which we do every other year. And uh, that, I remember that, that was very celebrated at the time. And everybody was very pleased, as I think we are today. Um, but your comments are very good. I could ask my own questions, but I think we've run out of time. Um, and I mentioned that when you were at, um, was it Bear Stearns? Yes. Um, I was a young staff officer at the State Department working on the creation of our debt strategy in the 1982 process of debt strategy. And uh, so it all brings home. I was also in Mexico in 79 where I predicted the Mexican crisis, but nobody would listen. In any event, I appreciate it, and I'm very much interested in your comments. This program has been brought to you today by the Association for the Study of the Cuban Economy, which is now celebrating its 30th year. Many of the members who spoke today were founding members, and I think they deserve thanks for creating an important institution. COVID-19 has led us to um, new formats, I think in some ways improved formats. And I think in the future, you will see a lot more virtual conferencing of this type. Um, to those who are viewing, I suggest that you keep in touch with our website um, where you will see those announcements. That's ASCIIcuba.org. Finally, I might mention that our next big conference will be in January, maybe virtual, maybe in person. We'll definitely decide that soon. And we're still accepting um, submissions for um, papers for that conference. So again, thank you to Carmen for a great job. I'm sorry I never studied with you. I would have loved to have done so. And um, thank you to participants. And I guess that's the closing. I would like to add something. Thank you, Carmen. This was great. Uh, it was good to see you. And I was not surprised by a wonderful performance. Bye.
Thank you. Thank you, dear Roger. And I do Bye -bye. miss you. You, Thank you know, you, I, 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 uh, and, you know, as I said, I'm surrounded by family here, you know? Okay. Ciao.